Well, everything in the kingdom is just the opposite of the world. We're talking in a series we've been doing for the last few weeks, and we got one more to go, on the confidence paradox. A paradox is a truth that appears to be contradictory. So in the kingdom, it's like the way to get is to give. The way to live is to die to yourself. The way to be strong is to be weak. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. Yet we don't want to be weak, right? So everything in the kingdom is just the opposite than this whole culture and world. So we're going to talk about the confidence paradox, and we're using the life of Jacob as our example. So we've been on a roller coaster ride with old Jake for several weeks. His name means to deceive, to cheat, to manipulate, to grab. How would you like that name? What's your name, cheater, manipulator, heel grabber? Uh, you better keep your hand on your wallet, and, and uh, don't worry, this, these are the original miles on this used car, yes. He's an absolute snake right now. And it ought to give you courage about uh, God's grace. Uh, if he can use Jacob, hey, we're in, folks. That's good, right? You may be here today feeling guilty and condemned. You, 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 can't, you can't out-condemn God's grace. It's just huge. And it's amazing what he can do with people who we don't like and we don't feel are worthy. Religious people, listen, if he's only going to do something for somebody worthy, we're out of here. We're out of here, right? There's none righteous, no, not one. So nobody in here is glowing in the dark. I don't see any nightlives in here, all right? So Jacob's been basically lying, cheating, and stealing his way to building a successful life. He tricked his brother out of the family birthright, which was two-thirds of the family wealth. He tricked his father into receiving the family blessing. He ran away from home, and he built a life of family, prosperity, wealth, and material success way away from home. So we're seeing that Jacob has really built a life a lot of people in the American culture are looking for. You know, great reputation, great resume, great success, lots of stuff, gated community, nice late model cars, everything you'd want. But underneath it, in his heart, there's a fight going on. There's a battle going on. Nobody sees that. We get to see it. See, there's this struggle that he's going to have to confront that we'll see in a few, for a few more minutes. There's a fair bit of content to setting up this story, so give me a second to walk through a few details so we can get down to this issue with Jacob. So he's away living with his uncle Laban, who's a bigger con man than Jacob, and he's doing what Jacob always does. He's scheming, he's tricking, he's doing all that stuff, and he basically deceives his uncle into giving him the best livestock, the best of his herds. Well, later he hears these rumors that his life may be in danger. That's the same thing that happened to him years earlier with his brother Esau. So he thinks, well, where can I go? And the one place he can go is the one place he doesn't want to go, home. That's to the place and person he's been avoiding his whole life, his brother Esau, who said, I'm going to kill you. <clears throat> Last words, huh? What will Esau think now? What will happen when he arrives home? Listen to what he does. This is Jacob, Genesis 32, verse 3. Well, Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He instructed these people. He says, here's what you're going to say to my Lord Esau. Your servant Jacob, your servant Jacob says, I have been staying with Laban and have remained there till now. I got cattle, donkeys, sheep, goats, male and female servants, Camelacs. I'm loaded. 
Now I'm sending this message to my Lord so I can find favor in your sight. Now, J- Jacob's already working his brother. I hope you, can you hope you can unpack this thing? See, he says, I've been staying with Laban, and I've remained there till now. In other words, I'm not hiding. I'm not running. Who, me? I'm not afraid. I, my confidence is in my self-sufficiency. I'm just living with old Uncle Laban. I've got cattle, donkeys, sheep, goats, male and female servants. In other words, don't worry, Esau. I'm not here to steal from you. I'm not here to take anything from you. I'm not here to trick you. And then I love this. Now I'm sending this message to my Lord that I might find favor in your eyes. In other words, hey Esau, why don't we just let the past be the past? Let's let bygones be bygones. Let's just move on to forget anything else ever happened. See, do you see what he's doing? The messenger goes to Esau and gives this message. And then he comes back and reports to Jacob that Esau is coming. Oh, did I mention with 400 men? Imagine, he didn't get a response like, how you doing? Nope. No, welcome home, Jacob. No, it's going to be great to see you, bud. No, we're going to have a big meal, a big party. No, the dude comes out with an army, 400 men. Well, what a show of force. Remember his last words to Jacob, I'm going to kill you. So you can imagine the cringe factor in Jacob right now. Jacob begins to panic even more, so he sends this extravagant gift to his brother Esau of goats and sheep and camels and cows and donkeys and and people. And again, he's scheming, he's planning, right? He does it in a certain way. Listen to what he does. He put them in the care of his servants, each herd by itself, and he said to the servants, you guys go ahead of me. In other words, I'm going to stay back in the back. I'm going to be looking after me, see? And I'm going to keep some space between the herds. Now, why does he do that? Well, Jacob is thinking that if my brother's going to kill me, that with each group I send all these gifts, Esau will have to be preparing as if that's me coming. He doesn't know. And it's going to stretch him with each group that comes Uh, there's going to be more people, more livestock and stuff to manage, which weakens Esau's ability to attack Jacob. So you think he's generous, right? No, he's scheming. He's He's playing this thing right down to the wire. Jacob always is about saving himself. That's where his confidence is. See, up until this point, all that he has left is his family and personal possessions. Then he does the unthinkable, and only old Jake could do this. He says, that night Jacob got up, took his two wives, the two female servants, and his 11 sons, and he crossed the small stream at Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all of his possessions. Now it's all gone. Jacob remained behind alone. Old Jacob is so concerned with his own safety, with his own life, he sends his family, his loved ones, his, his kids into danger ahead of him, and he stays behind. What kind of a husband would do that. This is Jacob, right? Jacob, to protect himself, self-absorbed, self-interested, sends his family first. Now he's alone. He's given everything away. He's depleted. He's empty. No more plans. Nothing else he can do. No more cards up his sleeve. No more tricks to play until something happens that changes old Jacob's life forever. I'll read it. So, Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip 
so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then this man Jacob's wrestling with said, let me go for it's daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And then the man said, what is your name? Now this, this is not asking for information. He's asking Jacob to fess up. Who are you really, old Jake? And he says, Jacob, heel grabbers, cheat, manipulator. And then the man said, good job. Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he says, why do you ask my name? It's like, you know who I am, Jacob. Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Uh, some theologians uh, believe that could have been an angel of the Lord or a pre-incarnate appearing of Theophanes, a pre-incarnate appearing of Jesus. And Jacob's life can basically be divided into two distinct chapters, his life before the fight, after the fight, his life before the limp, after the limp. His life could be summarized in one idea. It's all about self-sufficiency. It's all about what I can do, my ability, my strength. Jacob was part of a God-ordained family, remember? He talked to God, he prayed to God, he thought about God, but his life was motivated by his own strength, his own schemes, his own plan. He always had a way out. He always had a lie. He always had something he could pull out of the box to do. He believed in God. There's a God up there, I'm sure. I believe that. I can think about that. But when the challenges came, when difficulty came, when the drama, he trusted himself. Now, that's so true for a lot of folks in churches. I just recently read an article about today's average Christian. The article described the average Christian basically as somebody who often comes to faith in Christ as a child, either through family or a church experience, and the concept of God gets embedded into their worldview. I'm God conscious. But as they grow older, success and self-reliance becomes the basic motivator of their life, which means other than the fact that they have some kind of religious activity, may go to church or something, their lives don't look any different than anybody else. Their values aren't any different. I'll cheat you in a second in Jesus' name. It doesn't affect me at all. In other words, it's possible to believe in God, talk to God, and think that God is there, and go to church on Sunday or be part of a small group or serve. It's possible to have a God concept and be totally self-sufficient. In other words, that's where your confidence is. It's what I have. It's what I can do. It's what I know. It's who I know. That's really my confidence, although I wear a crucifix. Where's your confidence? See? Okay. And it's possible to believe that there's a God and when difficulty comes or trouble comes or you face a major challenge, suddenly the person you trust most is you. Psalms 20 verse 7 comes to my mind. Some men trust in chariots, some in horses, but we will remember the name of our God. So God can use what you have, but until you're in a place, and everybody will come to a place like that where nothing you have or know works. Yeah. I, I can't fix it. And that's where my confidence has been, what I can do, who I am, what I know, what I've achieved, what I have. And we all do that to some degree, some more than others. <clears throat> Let me tell you about faith. 
Faith is not thinking nothing can ever go wrong because that's not true. Faith is whenever something does go wrong, God will be enough to see me through. That's what faith is. When you're down and out, my confidence is God will see me through. My God shall supply your need. It may not be pretty. It may be hard. It may be a struggle, but he will see me through. That's what faith is. It's not glitz on your hair and uh, everything good happens to me. Yeah, read the Bible about people of faith. They got burned at the stake, fed the lions. Get you some of that. (laughs) Well, no, Brother Rick, I just won't be blessed. (laughs) Well, let's go in the burning fiery furnace over here in Jesus' name. Yeah, well, you see the ludicrousy of it. So I'm confident. I'm a confident man. We'll get through the COVID deal. It's not pretty. Some people might get sick. There'll be some some issues, uh, owning businesses as well. I'll have to make some adjustments. Churches are having to make some adjustments. But my ultimate confidence is what God started, God will finish. That which I've begun in you, I will perform it until the day of Jesus. Philippians 1.6. I'm confident that he'll take care of me, that his plans have not been changed. Your, your call, your, your talent, uh, he says in Romans, he says, my plans for you, uh, your gifts and callings are irrevocable. So if God ever made me a promise, I may have to wait till I'm 100 to get it. Well, Abraham did, right? Uh, all the saints had a delay. God gives you a promise, and then there's a problem. And how you respond to that problem determines how quick you get to the promise of it. Uh, some people just flunk out at the problem. But I, I, I don't believe that it's easy. I do believe it's quite possible. So my confidence has always been, honey, I don't know how. I don't know when we'll get through this. Now that, it takes a while to get there. Because in the meanwhile, I'm a fixer. I'll fix that. I'll solve that. I'll take care of that. I can do that. That's what controllers like to do. Now, if we had armrest, I could tell you who the controller is sitting next to you, whoever's arm is on it. Yeah, I know who you are. You're in here too. And I can't, that's the nature. I, I want to fix it. I want to make it right, like now. And sometimes you can't do that. And I have to say, I don't know. I don't know when. I don't know how. I just know we will. I'm confident of that. He'll see me through. Well, <clears throat> that's old Jacob. That's his story. And then we find out in this moment in his life, God has something to say about that. And the text says, a man showed up and picked a fight. Now, again, uh, different versions of it. I think personally it was a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus. Some people say it's an angel and God himself. But what we see is there is a struggle going on in Jacob beneath this struggle. Jacob realizes in this moment his battle's not really with Esau. His struggle's not really with Uncle Laban. His battle's not with his family, not even himself. It's really with God way underneath it as his battle. Who are you going to trust? Where's your confidence? Later, the prophet Hosea put it this way. In the womb, before the sucker even hit the exit door, Jacob grabbed his brother's heel. As a man, he struggled with God. There you go. In other words, in his adult life, in his real life, in all these struggles, there was that struggle going on beneath it. So what are you facing right now? What challenge? What situation? What battle? What circumstance? What person? Maybe there's actually a struggle beneath that struggle. Maybe there's actually something else going on, not about the circumstance. It's about who you trust. It's about 
who's in control. It's about who's really in charge of your life. When the answer is you, God will show up and pick a fight. And you are not going to win. See, God is going to start a fight. And you think about that. Notice the timing in Jacob's life. Jacob's alone. He's depleted. I mean, he's empty. Everything he had is gone. At this point in his life, Jacob is an older man, almost 100 years old. God shows up, and not in a moment of tenderness or compassion, although it actually is compassion, he shows up and picks a fight. <laughs> oh, Lord, I wish you'd just come to me. And God says, okay, put your dukes up. I'm coming. And that's what he does here, see? And he wrestles with him, and he shows up and wounds Jacob. Now, God is in this in a whole different way. It's uncomfortable. It's unpleasant. And so often we think God is the one who should come and take my pain or my problem away just like a drug. One writer and researcher, Brene Brown, she, she talks about vulnerability and shame from her past. And she talks about going through a midlife crisis in her life. Did you know women can go through a midlife crisis too? <laughs> I'm not going to say any more now about that. All right. I think I'll back out right now. I don't want to fight. Okay. So she decided to go back to church because research says that when you hit a midlife crisis, people go back to church. But she's really nervous about it. She was like, I don't want to dress up, and I'm not sure I want to meet new people, and I don't want to go to a place with Jesus in the name. Maybe a saint is okay, but certainly not Jesus in the name. And then she goes back to church, and she said she went back thinking, I was hoping I'd find a God who would almost be like a drug who'd take my pain away. But what she found was a God who was saying, Renee, maybe it's supposed to be hard. Maybe it's going to be a fight. Maybe it's going to be a battle. Maybe it's going to be a struggle. See, doesn't the scripture say fight the good fight of faith? Okay. Come on, some of you are out of shape. This is, a, this is a battle. See, part of the reason why life is challenging is because redemption is hard. Going to heaven's not hard. Love is hard. Marriage is hard. Faith is hard. In the moment, in Jacob's life, what he discovers is that his self-sufficiency, his confidence in himself only got to die. It has to go. When you're connected, you know, with the fact your self-sufficiency has to go, you are going to fight. All of us will. Because somewhere deep inside, no matter how long you've been part of a church, no matter how long you've been involved in or had faith, there's a part of you that will not let go of your strength, your will, your smarts, your ability to try to get through life on your own by trusting yourself. And when that is threatened, you'll fight. You'll fight, right? But that has to die. So by self-sufficiency, Jacob's got to let this thing go. That's what he's had all of his life. So that's the moment. That's the question. And that's what divides Jacob's life into these two chapters. When Jacob realizes this, it's really amazing. Now he starts to pray. Not a typical churchy prayer. Now he's really gut honest with God. No more playing games here, see? He's not trying to manipulate God. He's being honest. And so his conversation with God is going to change drastically. Maybe just a question. Anybody ever feel kind of bored with prayer or feel like, gosh, it's just not that interesting or I just don't have time to do it? A writer named Ben Patterson says that whenever you're bored with prayer, it's a sign God's bored too because it means you're not really talking to him. It means you're not really at a gut level where you're involved in this struggle between you and him and being honest. 
It's between who's really in charge. Do you know you can, you can pour out your complaint to God? That's called groaning in the Bible. Or you can talk about God negatively. That's complaining. Complaining is outlawed in Scripture. Groaning to God. <laughs> I remember Jack Taylor. He used to be pastor at Castle Hills First Baptist. <laughs> I love that man. He's still alive, but I, I never will forget. He said, this old Scotsman was having an honest-to-God prayer with the Lord. And the old Scotsman said, Lord, I'm not surprised you got as few friends as you do the way you treat the ones you got. <laughs> now, that's honest. That's really honest. I remember Charles Simpson was a Baptist preacher in Mobile, Alabama. He was a heavy chain smoker. He said, I knew I was a bad example. I knew I ought to quit smoking. I knew it was bad for my health. And I used to go to the altar and pray. <laughs> but actually, it never worked because I never really wanted to quit. He said, everything happened to, to change the day I finally said, Lord, I don't want to quit. And I'd eat them if I could. I love them. Now that is open. That's vulnerable. He says, that's when breakthrough came. Playing a game, Lord, take this. And, you, you know, really want him to. You know, it's really when, it's like he already knows, but he wants you to know he knows. And now you just talk it out with him. You say, you ever, ever talk to the Lord and say, you know, I'm not real happy about the way you're doing this? Yeah, me too. Me too. That's okay. That's all right. So in this moment, something comes out of Jacob that's entirely different. Listen to what he says. I will not let you go unless you bless me. See, the big guy here, Jacob, who's been avoiding, uh, holding on to everything in his life, his money, his uh, his status, everything he's got, he's been holding on to his success, his resume, his reputation, his wealth. Now he says, God, I won't let you go unless you bless me. He finds himself now clinging to the one thing he has, God. He has nothing else. It's so ironic. He sent all of his stuff across the river. He's there by himself. What a picture of what was always true. <laughs> he, he was always alone. He was always at risk. He was always vulnerable. And he's holding on to that stuff thinking, this is what's going to get me through, really. Say, so you can lose your health. In one checkup, you can lose your job due to this COVID thing. In one day, a pink slip, a great career, or your business folds. It can happen to any of us just overnight. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's amazing how, you, if you realize how temporal everything is, then you realize, what is my confidence in this stuff for? I can lose all this, but I can't lose God. I've got to have ultimately confidence in Him. So, now, instead of saying, this is what's going to get me through, now he's clinging to the one thing he has. Here's the good news. It's the only thing he needs. It's God. That's why God said to Abraham, I will be your exceeding great reward. You trust me. I'll take care of everything. So this is faith. This is the heart of what Christian faith is all about. If you're new to church, if you're not sure what it's all about, this is at the core of it. Faith is not something we achieve out of our own strength. It's something we discover when we have nothing else to hold on to. When everything I've tried doesn't work, will I believe what God said? He'll never leave me, never forsake me, supply my need, blah, blah, blah. That's when faith gets expressed. Not when you're strong, when all hell breaks loose and there's nothing but him to help, to help you.
See, when the, when the problems are too great, when the pain is too much, when the shame is too big, when our self-sufficiency falls to the side and we've got nothing left, that's when faith starts. You will never know God is all you need until God's all you got. You won't. You just can't. How true that was for old Jake here, right? You'll never know that God is all you need until he's all you have. God's going to wrestle with us. He's going to battle with us. He'll fight with us until we get to that place. And this is what many of the struggles of life are really about. I love how God responds to Jacob's prayer. He says, okay, Jake, you're no longer going to be called Jacob, which means deceiver, heel grabber, manipulator. You will be called Israel. Now, that's a combination of two words, Isra, which means to persevere or hold on to, and El, Israel, El, which means God. In other words, the man who used to be the master manipulator now is the one who clings to God. The, the man who used to be the master of his own fate is now the one who holds desperately to God. So you think about that for a moment. God's people forever are defined by this. See, we are the people of Israel. Get its true meaning here. Don't be thinking racial right now. The people who struggle but hold on. The, the people who wrestle but cling to God as the only thing we have. That's who we are. That's our legacy. That's the church. We're not just here holding on to our stuff and then asking God, help me keep it. We're here because when it comes down to it, we actually have nothing else that's stable to hold on to. There's something even deeper at work in the story. Jacob doesn't just get a new name. He gets a limp. Merry Christmas. Did you notice that detail? It says, when the sun rose, Jacob walked away limping, wounded, humbled, vulnerable. In fact, he goes to meet his brother Esau, not in a show of strength or wealth or importance, not, not with a reputation or a resume, but weak, limping, and vulnerable. Oh, don't you hate that? You would think that would make his life terrible. You would think that would be the end of him. But what's so amazing, it actually saves him. The text says when Esau saw Jacob, his brother, limping to meet him, Esau ran to meet him, embraced him, threw his arms around his neck, kissed him, and they wept together. It's kind of interesting. Jacob thought he could buy or manipulate or scheme his way through life. It's interesting the limp saved him. Vulnerability saved him. His weakness saved him. I have to admit, I don't like that part of the story because I don't want to limp, and I don't want you to see me limp in life. Just to risk a moment of vulnerability is one of the great struggles of life. None of us want to appear weak or vulnerable or needy, right? Can you be honest? For crying out loud, who wants to do that? Worry, <laughs> worry is some people's spiritual gift. They can make coffee nervous, right? It's not just anxiety. It's anxiety here with Jacob mixed with vanity. What will, what will they think of me? What will you think of me if you know me? What, what will, you, will you think well of me? I want you to think well of me. And I want you to think I'm strong and talented and smart. I want to be somebody people would look up to. See, it pains us so much when we realize we're not those things and that we're so imperfect and we worry about it. Well, I'll give all of you some good news for me. I think everybody in this room is imperfect. <laughs> so you don't have to worry. I know you're imperfect. 
everybody's normal till you get to know them. Everybody's got weaknesses. God says so, so I don't have to worry about that. I don't care if you glow in the dark. You got a problem. I know it. Here's the thing. God does something through our limp. He never does through our strength. He works wonders through it. My strength is made perfect in your weakness, but we don't want to be weak. He redeems through my weakness. He reconciles relationships through it because it's no longer about your self-sufficiency or your strength. It's about what he can do with you. I love how the Apostle Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 10. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecution, in difficulties, in anxiety, in struggles, in self-doubt, in body image. For when I am weak, then I'm strong. That's the confidence paradox. What? When I'm weak, then I'm strong. God says, then I can give you my strength. That's the heart of the struggle with Jacob. And the question for you and me is, do I believe that? Are you willing to bet your life on that? Are you willing to let go and then hold on to God because of this? See, as the one thing I have and the only thing that I really need, I'll never leave you or forsake you, Rick. I have to believe that. I remember in the rock and roll business when I watch guys die. I watch guys get drunk, mess up their life and marriage. And I'm just a young 18-year-old in college. And I remember watching all this going on. And I thought, oh, we're going to be rich and we're going to be famous. And it wasn't. And then there was jealousy and greed among some of the guys in the band, like typical rock and roll performers. And, you know, then you start to split up and break up. And I thought, well, I dropped out of the middle of college because we're going to be famous and rich. And we weren't famous and we weren't rich. Well, we, we had a good run, but nothing, nothing that would qualify what I thought in my expectation. And then I tried everything I could. Well, I'm still, I still can make it big and now the band is going to break up because of all their jealousy and greed. And I thought, you idiots, couldn't you just stay together to make money? I mean, I'm thinking logically, you know, they're thinking vanity. But anyway, make that a long story short. I can remember trying for about a year and a half, trying to make it happen, make it happen. Nothing happened. And I never will forget just walking alone and just praying. Now, have you ever, I don't know if you've ever done this. It's a real prayer. God, I can't do anything. Everything. I, nobody, nobody has any need for a dropout college guy. I'm not going to change the world. It's not working. I've done everything I know to do. I got no more cards to play. Please help me. I'll do whatever you say. I'll never forget that. Surrender. And it's amazing. I got back in college. I made the dean's list. I didn't make the dean's list before. I was going to be famous and rich. Now I'm studying. Now, now I'm acing everything. Now the real me is starting to emerge, and God's blessing me, and I'm going to church. This little dead Episcopal church was next door to an apartment that I lived in, and I started going out of duty because I told God I'll do whatever you say. I could have been a little more, I didn't have anything to know what to go to. I just wanted God to know, I'm going to do what I told you. And to make a long story short, he put me through college, directed my life. A business guy shared Jesus with me, which I believed like Jacob. I believe in God and believe Jesus died. But I'd never just said, really, I know what I'm doing. I want Jesus to come in my heart. I'll never forget that. And my life took a whole new turn, which is why I'm here today, because of that, like Jacob. I got nothing to, I got nothing working. Nothing's working. Help me. I'll do whatever you say. Whatever you say. And, he, and I could bet you a lot of you could tell me the same kind of a story. 
It's interesting, Jacob names this place, kind of unique. He calls it Peniel, which means the face of God. Not fight with God. He doesn't call it the place I fought God. He calls it the face of God, the place where I saw God. And that's what Jacob realizes, the God who felt so much like an enemy that he struggled with him, who was fighting over his own self-sufficiency, was this God who had an incredible gift of himself to Jacob. It's interesting in this story, a man wrestled with him until daybreak. 2,000 years ago, a man from heaven came again to wrestle with all of humanity, to fight with us and for us, and to give us his life on a cross, holding on to God the Father. I won't let you go unless you bless me. Three days later, God the Father blessed his son, raised him from the dead so he could come and give you and I life, everlasting life. That's going to be a struggle. This redemption, this faith, this following God, just uncomfortable, and it's not easy, and it's not pain-free. It's going to be a struggle occasionally. It's going to be hard. It's going to be painful. But there, here's the thing. Success is not going to fix me. It's not going to fix you. Surrender is, which is what made my life different when I said, I surrender. I throw down the white flag. I'm yours, okay? You beat me. I didn't win. I'm sorry. So a paradox of confidence here, the way to win is to lose. The way up is to humble yourself. Humble yourself, I will exalt you. And that's when life changed for me, and that'll change for you as well. So right now in these last moments, I want to invite you to do that in your own way, in your own words, in your own heart, to make it real practical, real simple. I want to give you four words you can say no matter what story you face or what situation you're in. Four words. God I need you. You don't, have to, you don't have to be religious. God, I need you. Maybe you're in a moment in your marriage that's painful. God, I need you. Maybe you're struggling at work with your career in your financial life, and, and you're not sure what the future holds. That's not the struggle. The struggle is, God, I need you. When we moved into this building in 08, 350 churches went bankrupt. First time ever. 40% giving dropped off everywhere. All my friends, we thought we might not even get to come in because everything was devastated in 08. Does anybody happen to remember that? Yeah, and I remember us getting together and saying, I am not going to panic about that. I said, if God started it, God will finish it. I don't know how, but we're still here. We're still standing, you know what I'm saying? And, I, and a lot of people aren't, but our confidence was in him. It wasn't in being cute. It was God, I don't know. I just pray for your deliverance, your help, and your sufficiency. And he did. And he will for you too. Maybe life looks really good on the outside for you and everybody thinks, ah, you're doing great. But inside, there's this pain, emptiness, aloneness, where self-sufficiency's kind of run out of steam for you. And you need four words. God, I need you. That's the battle. That's the fight. And it takes all of our will and all of our effort to let go of whatever else and hold on to him. So let me ask you this question. What do you really have to lose? What's so good you're holding on to? What's so great that you have that isn't worth letting go and hanging on to the one and the one thing that you really have and the only one thing you ever need, and that's him. For more information on Summit Christian Center, visit summitsa.com.